Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 5. That's where we'll be at tonight. It's the uh, eight of 11 letters from the Father to the Son, and we're just still marching through them. We're, we're towards the end, and then after that, we'll start looking at various topics that are addressed in the latter half of the book. But right now, it's just going through letters that the Father has written, and like I said, this is the eighth letter, but it's actually the first, which is specifically on the topic of sexual sin. The father writes of his eleven three letters to his son regarding sexual sin or sexually um, charged sin. And so he talks about that for the first time in this letter here, Proverbs chapter five, verses one through twenty three. It's the it's the whole chapter. And so we'll be looking at that tonight. But I think that tells us something that of eleven Letters that a father writes to his son in God's holy word, three of them are focused in on the particular sin of sexual sin. I think that tells us something, right? That it's a big problem, obviously pertinent to a lot of people, that God's word would have so much to say on it. A big temptation for a big pool of people. So obviously really needs to be addressed. Jesus had much to say on it. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say on it. Obviously the law and the prophets had much to say on our sexual ethic and conduct. And so um, I think we would do well to consider his words tonight in Proverbs chapter 5. But it starts really in... um, general sense, uh, a lot like how the, all the other letters started. Right? He, he doesn't jump right into, at least, the topic of sexual sin. He actually starts, like he has all the other seven letters so far, with a command in verse 1. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Right? This is very similar to what we've been reading in all the letters so far, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. And I think we can do this in a lot of ways, right? Inclining our ear to, to God's word, to godly wisdom, right? Of course, we can do that in personal time, Bible reading. Hopefully, you're doing that. Um, it's, it can be a hard practice to start. Certainly a hard one to pick back up if you kind of fall away from it. Um, But something that I think all Christians should be doing, right, is getting in God's Word every single day. But of course, we shouldn't only be doing it in the confinement of personal study, but we should be doing hearing God's Word, inclining our ears to His understanding in the context of community, right? That could be life groups, and hopefully you're maybe involved in life groups. Um, 
just hearing the thoughts of other people. It's different than, obviously, this, where it's a monologue. You can hear the, the thoughts of other believers sharing their understanding and their application of the text. You can also find that in Sunday school. Of course, the morning and the evening worship gatherings. But I think it's important, in whatever setting, that we are inclining our ears to the Word of God. And I, I love that you're obviously here tonight and in the mornings. But inclining our ears to the Word of God so important. That's the command and the effect of inclining your ears to the Word of God is is found in verse 2. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So really you incline your ear so that your lips would recite back what you've been hearing. To repeat back what you've heard. That, that's, that's the effect of inclining your ears. Now your, your lips will guard knowledge or, I think, repeat what you've been hearing. We, we see this in kids a lot. Obviously, we're seeing this in Judah right now, where he repeats everything. And uh, if you raised children, you know you have to be very careful because they will say everything. And uh, so if you're talking with your spouse about maybe somebody else that was supposed to be just a conversation between you and your spouse. Make sure that the little one's not standing next to you, right? And this is just true that they repeat everything. Right now, Judah, I don't know where he heard it from, either Sarah or me or someone else, but he just says, yeah, things happen. He just says that all the time. And so um, he was walking to the, the table the other night and we, you know, he wants to be a big boy. Right now he's very independent. He has to buckle himself in his car seat by himself. He has to carry his food by himself, all this stuff. And so anyway, the other night he, he was carrying his plate and he dropped it and just spilled everywhere. And he just looks up and he goes, things happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, that happens sometimes. Um, another one is uh, we'll be driving in the car and he'll say, he'll, he'll yell back to Sarah and I in the front seat, how you doing back there? And uh, he'll just, well, we're doing good. How are you doing back there? (laughs) He just repeats everything that we are saying. Our lips will recite what our ears are inclined to. And I don't think any of us grow out of this, right? It's not just for kids that we mature out of. This is reality for all of us. When we take something in, we end up regurgitating it back up. Right? We end up repeating what we hear And so I think that comes to, when you look at Christianity and you you look at being an evangelist for the gospel, hopefully you want to be, I want to be, somebody that is proclaiming the gospel, right? If you want to be a voice for the gospel to a world of sinners that need to hear it, you have to surround yourself with the words of the gospel first. If you don't, if you're not regularly in the Word, in personal time, if you're not devoting yourself to the corporate gathering, and, and whether it be Sunday school or life groups or something like that, it, it's kind of a stretch to expect yourself to then, when the time arises, to be a spokesman for it when you haven't surrounded yourself all week in hearing it. I think that's what we're learning here in Proverbs 5, 1 and 2. Incline your ears so that your lips may speak it. That's the effect of the command. 
And then he gives a reason. Verses 3 through 6. This is why you want to incline your ears so that your lips may guard knowledge. Here's the reason why this is important, why it matters, is because you will be tempted at some point and you will need the Word of God to defend with. So he says, we read it all in one thought. My son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ears to my understanding so that you may keep discretion, keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For, here's the reason, this is why it's so important. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the paths of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. That's why it's important. Is because there will come a time when you are tempted. When, you're cha- when, you're, when your faith is challenged. And in those moments, when the speech sounds good, that we have heard the word of God and are able to speak it. I, I want you to notice the connection between this letter and the last letter. Letter number seven. That was in chapter four, the last half of chapter four, verses 20 through 27. There's a connection there. Whereas if you remember in the last letter, chapter four, verses 20 through 27, there was a lot of body terminology, right? Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them escape your sight for their healing to your flesh. Put away devious talk from your lips. Let your eyes look directly forward. Ponder the path of your feet. And so there's all this body terminology saying, let your body be used and focused on God's word. For godly purposes. And in this letter now, in chapter 5, it says that we will be faced with those who use their bodies for the opposite purpose whose speech is divisive and enticing like honey, whose feet walk the path to Sheol and death. So we are to use our bodies for godly purposes, but we will be faced with people who use their bodies for opposite purposes. Specifically, you're still looking at verses 3 through 6 here. Their lips... The things they say will be enticing. It'll sound right. It'll sound like, well, I guess, yeah, that that makes sense, right? That's what it means when their lips are dripping honey, that what they say sounds right. And their feet walk to death. It sounds right, but it leads to death. All right, so this is true regarding sexuality right that's obviously the original and the primary context of the text right here he's talking about the adulterous woman the forbidden woman who entices you to herself she's saying something that you're like well yeah maybe it would be okay then right she's convincing in her argument and so the the original context is 
sexual. And that's, that's true today, isn't it? There are things that are said about sexuality that if you're not inclining your ear to the Word of God, it could sound right and we might not have an argument against it, right? Hearing that you're a hateful bigot, right? If you don't use people's preferred pronouns, right? This is, this is, this is speech that leads to death but sounds convincing if you're not inclining your word, your ears to the Word of God. Right? But this is true in all areas of life. Not just in the realm of sexuality or, or sex. It's true in all areas of life. I mean, we, we, we have messages that are being propagated in the world around us regarding abortion. Right? That are gaining traction and popularity. It's my body, my choice. And you're like, well, it is her body. But obviously the argument leads to death. That my body, my choice means my body, so my choice to end another person's life. But if you're not inclining your ear to the word of God, can your lips guard knowledge when the time comes for the forbidden woman to speak those things to you? That's, that's the question, right? Are you here the <clears throat> seemingly convincing message that so many people are bowing down to today in the realm of race, racism? That white people are racist simply because they're white. It's all it takes to be racist. Because you're white. Right? And you supposedly benefit from that in society. So if you're a beneficiary of your whiteness, you are racist. I actually saw on Facebook, was it last week? Whatever Juneteenth was. When June 19th, last week, two weeks ago. Somebody on Facebook I saw posted. They wrote that in honor of Juneteenth, all white people need to... um, send money to any black people they know. That, and actually her phrase, I screenshotted it and I put it in quotes here in my notes. Pay up white people, don't be stingy. Now, some might say, I, I guess I don't know what to say there. I, I am white, yeah, and I don't want to be called a bigot. So maybe I should do that. Incline your ear to the Word of God. So that when speech that sounds convincing but leads to death is spoken, our lips can discern and guard knowledge. That, that's what the text is saying here. Don't buy into that insanity. Don't feel guilty or ashamed for the color of your skin. No one should, no matter what color your skin is. And so, the main idea here in this text, looking at Proverbs chapter 5, is that we should know godly wisdom, verse 1, so that we can repeat it with our own lips, verse 2, when we're faced with believable yet 
deadly messages. Verses 3 through 6. And those will come. They will come. And when they do, we need to have inclined our ears to the word of God. Right? But then he gets more specific in the rest of the letter, verses 7 onward, regarding sexual sin. So, any people taking notes, outlining here? I think verses 7 through 14 are the father saying, is what the father saying is, what not to do and reasons for that. And then verses 15 through 23 is what to do instead and reasons for that. So first, what not to do, reasons for it. And then second, what to do instead and reasons for that. Let's walk through those. One at a time. Firstly, what not to do. Verses 7 and 8. And I will simplify it with one word. Drift. Drift. Do do not drift. This is what he's saying in verses 7 and 8. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Do you see this? Don't drift. Don't drift. In other words, don't flirt with temptation. Don't, um, I think, common vernacular and Id- idiom that you and I might use is don't toe the line, right? Don't toe the line. I remember when I was growing up, my dad was going to take me up on a helicopter ride. And uh, the helicopter was sitting there idle. Of course, the propellers, yeah, were, uh, I promise, I'm a professional orator. <laughs> uh, the propeller, or the rotor, uh, was, was sitting idle. But of course, still, obviously, very fast. And I remember someone was yelling to me, duck when you're going, duck when you're going. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And I didn't think they were really being serious, uh, whatever. I just didn't care. And I just walked straight up, you know, not ducking at all. And I remember when I got right up next to where the rotor was spinning, but it's kind of going low. Um, It got so close to me that it actually knocked me over. It didn't touch me, of course, but it knocked me over just from the sheer wind that it was blowing. I walked up and it actually knocked me over because I got so close by walking straight up without ducking. And I think that's a pretty good image here. Don't toe the line. Don't flirt with it. Don't get close. Because when you get close, tragedy happens. Right? This is true in any area of life, but specifically true when it comes to sex and off-limit romantic relationships. Don't flirt with the line. Don't ride the line. And I, I, just, I, I should say this too. This isn't just for young couples. Right? This isn't just for people my age. I've seen emotional affairs and even sexually charged lusting spouses and all ages. 
I mean, in fact, wasn't it Solomon who waited until the latter years of his life to fall into the most egregious sexual sin? Didn't Ravi Zacharias go to the grave committing sexual sin at an old age? So this this is not don't 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 lie to yourself or to another person to think that this is only for someone who might be younger. This is for all people, right? What we're to see here is that we need to see where the temptation is, right? See where the temptation is and don't draw the line there. Draw the line way before you get there. Billy Graham's a good example of that, right? He went to the grave never being alone with a woman, right? Whether it be driving in the car, sitting in a meeting, he saw the temptation and he drew the line way before. Don't drift, the father says. Don't gravitate towards because you'll find tra- tragedy. And really that's his reasoning. It's because that you will pay a great price if you do drift if you do toe the line, if you kind of go near the door of her house, you'll find yourself going inside. Right? So he gives his reason here in verses 9 and 10. And I'll, I'll say this. He doesn't have to give a reason, does he? He's God. It, 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 this, is, this is God speaking to his children. God doesn't have to give a reason why he says what we should or should not do. Right? If he simply says, don't do it, obedience is expected, right? Whether we understand his reasoning or don't understand it, we don't like his reasoning or we do like it, really doesn't matter, right? If, if God is saying and God's word is saying, obey, that's what we're to do. And I think that we obviously see that in parenting, don't we, where, where moms and dads would use that phrase that I think all of us hated as kids. Because I said so? Yeah, yeah, you know. Because I said so. And we just hate that. No, give me a reason. Well, your authority doesn't have to give a reason. Their authority is their reason. It can be. It's a sufficient reason. Now, of course, it's very kind and gracious for the authority, mom and dad or, or God, to, to kneel down and say, and this is why. It's because I care about you and I know better. And if you do go near the door of her house, you will end up going in. So don't put yourself in that position, right? So they can explain and they can give the reason, but they don't have to. Their authority is the reason. And yet, God does give his reason in kindness. He graciously explains verses 9 and 10. You see, this is why we don't go near, anywhere near the door of her house. He says, unless, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, Lest strangers take their fill of their strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. I think maybe I didn't have verse 10. So this is why. This is why we don't flirt or toe the line. It's because the consequences of falling into that, into that temptation can be devastating. Right? You see, you, you would give up your honor 
He's saying to his sons, if you go and you step into that house, you're giving up your honor. Right? We see that played out all the time in real life, don't we? Pastors step down from their position of honor when they step into that house. Right? Presidents will get taken down. Thinking Bill Clinton, right? Monica Lewinsky. Places of honor removed because you stepped into that house. Right? I've seen, or I know of a family where a man had to confess to his whole family what he had done. And it took him years to work back or gain back their trust and their respect. You step into that house, you lose your honor. And then he even says there in verse 10, strangers and foreigners will take all that you've labored and used all your strength for. What's he talking about there? If you step into that house, a foreigner or a stranger is going to take all you've got. What's he, what's he mean? Well, I think just very practically, just think about this. Um, somebody, he's talking to his sons here. He says, oh sons. A man steps into an adulterous affair, walks into a stranger's house. Now it is his responsibility to care for her, especially if he impregnates her, right? To take care of that child, to use your money to provide for her and the child. So he says, don't step into that house because when you do, you lose honor and it's going to be great expectations for the rest of your life. And ultimately he says, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret And it's going to eat at you, even at the tail end of your life. That's verses 11 through 14. He says, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you will say, oh, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voices of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. You see this? The voice of a man who had to live the rest of his life with that decision. I think that's something you and I, all of us, should really reflect on, learn from his mistake in the Word of God, that we might not follow him in his footsteps. I think the beautiful thing of the Gospel, one of the amazing things of the Gospel, there's so many beautiful things, but one of the great beauties of the Gospel is that as soon as you step into a relationship with Jesus, Your guilt is gone, right? Your guilt is gone. Your shame is removed. And Jesus doesn't see the stain of your sin anymore. From that day on, past sins, present sins, future sins, the shame and the guilt is entirely removed and you stand before a holy God, perfectly just and accepted. Amen to that. 
And yet the practical reality is there are still consequences in this life that we must face for our actions. Right? When you think of the analogy of of a murderer who justly goes to prison for the rest of his life and he finds Jesus in that prison. Praise God that he has been forgiven by his egregious sin. He is accepted before a holy God, loved for eternity by him. And yet he's not getting out of that prison. He's in that prison. Rightfully so. For the rest of his life. We can be accepted by Jesus and yet still have to walk with the baggage and the consequences that some of our decisions make. I think that should be a deterrent for you and I from stepping in that door. Whatever that door looks like for you. Right? So summary is, do not drift towards temptation because it will devastate your life. It will devastate your life. Whatever that is, whether it be sexual sin or some other sin, giving yourself over to it, sin will naturally always devastate our lives. So what he says to do instead, and his reasons for it very quickly, verses 15 through 20. He says, drink water from your own cistern. This is what to do instead. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Just for anyone is what he's saying. Just public consumption. No, let them be for yourself alone. Not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a gracious doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Stop there. This is what we're to do instead. Right? Don't drift towards the forbidden, but embrace wholeheartedly and joyfully what God has given you. And what God has permitted for you. I think one of the best tactics to abstain from evil is to invest in good. Just think on that. One of the best tactics of abstinence is to turn to what is good and give your whole self to it. Again, I I hate to just give so many parenting analogies, but it's obviously consuming my life (laughs) in parenting. Um, But right now, Judah, and, and all kids, again, we don't grow out of this either, I don't think, But he sees something shiny and knew he wants that. And then he goes and grabs it and he was just like dying to have that. He takes it and how long is he interested in it? All of about two seconds. And then he just wants the next shiny thing that he sees. And I think what is important for him to learn is contentment with what you do have. That the grass isn't always greener, the saying goes. Contentment and satisfaction in what you do have and being okay with that being forbidden. And I think you and I also need to learn that and regularly be taught that. Contentment and satisfaction in what is permissible. And so for for the married people in the room, and I I know not everyone here is married, but that means 
One of the greatest strategies against falling into adultery is to invest in your marriage. To stay madly in love with your spouse. All the days of your life. Be satisfied with not seeking anything outside of the marriage bed. To fight the feelings of needing something new and exciting. Right? Again, this isn't just for younger people because I've even seen people leave their spouse after 20 years of marriage because of a midlife crisis. I just need something exciting in my life. You don't. You need what is good in your life. And this is also applicable to a single person. It's not just the married person. In fact, if it has been God's will or is God's will for you to be single, that is then God saying that you don't need another person to find satisfaction and joy in your life. You don't. You don't. God has given you all that you need. God has given all of us all that we need. And so I'd encourage any single individuals to not just seek out the thing that is just grass is greener, but to invest yourself in what God has given you today. Maybe that is relationships in the church. Invest in His bride. Maybe that's God Himself. Invest in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's other things. But these are tactics to stay holy and pure, to invest in what God has given you, which are good and pure. And this is his reason for why we should do this. Last few verses. 21 through 23. He's saying, stay faithful to what you have. Stay pure there. Verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnares him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Why should we enjoy what only God has permitted? Because God is watching. Because God is watching. That's verse 21. The all-knowing nature of God. That he sees everything you do. I think that can be really troubling for the person who's ensnared by sin. Right? Knowing that God is watching you. But it's so encouraging to the one who's suffering and struggling. But remaining faithful to God. If you're remaining faithful to God. Even if it's hard. What an encouragement, right? What an encouragement that God sees you. He sees everything. That you're doing. So, I guess to summarize, it's a really difficult letter from a father to a son is whatever temptations you face, whether it be sexual in nature or something else, you know, and I'm sure it's on your mind right now, whatever temptation you're struggling, whatever sins entice you, I would say the general principle in this text applies to all. Temptations. Don't flirt with what's off limits. But instead, find contentment in what you have. Never growing weary 
with what he's given you already. And I would say chiefly, he's given you himself. Stay content and satisfied that you have him. The grass is never greener than the grass where you are with Jesus. Remain content with him. And God will bless you in your life. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 